Welcome to Christian Historical Fiction Talk. I'm your host, author Liz Tolsma, and I am so glad that you have decided to join me for this episode. We have a fabulous author in Laura France with us. She's been here before. We have a wonderful conversation that you are not going to want to miss. For those of you who are longtime listeners, thank you so much for being loyal listeners. I really do appreciate each and every one of you. For those of you who are here for the very first time, welcome. I am so glad to have you with us. Please be sure to subscribe to Christian Historical Fiction Talk on your favorite podcasting platform so that you don't miss out on any of the episodes. We have great authors. We have wonderful conversations. We have book recommendations. We talk about what is happening in the world of Christian historical fiction. So you don't want to miss out on any of that. Be sure also to follow Christian Historical Fiction Talk on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest. We're in all of those places. We have some wonderful conversations, and it's another great way to get informed when a new episode releases. If you would like early access to any of our episodes or the chance to ask an author a question, then be sure to go over to my website, liztolsma.com. Click on any of the more recent podcasts there, and under the show notes, you will see an area where you can click to join my Patreon account, and you'll get early access. You will get a chance to ask an author a question. There's a monthly book giveaway, lots of good and wonderful things going on over there. Please consider supporting Christian Historical Fiction Talk so that we can keep the program going and we can keep helping you discover new Christian historical fiction authors or help you rediscover old favorites. I do want to start off by apologizing if this comes across a little bit muffled as we are taping this. I am sitting next to my daughter who has COVID. It has struck our household. Unfortunately, I am feeling fine, but I am wearing a mask just in case. If any of you don't know, she is disabled and can't care for herself, so I have to be in here with her, hence the mask. So my apologies for that. Laura was very gracious, and please accept my apologies if this audio quality is not what you are used to. I hope it comes out okay. All right, enough about all of that. I am so thrilled to welcome to the show today, returning to us author Laura France, and she is here to talk about her new release, The Rose and the Thistle. Welcome to the show, Laura. It's so good to have you with us today. I love joining you in talking books. Thank you, Liz. Yes, you have been here before, and it's so great to have you back. I've been looking forward to getting to talk to you about your new book, The Rose and the Thistle. But before we get into that and what that is all about, for those of you who maybe missed you the first time around or need to refresh their memories as to who you are, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, sure. I've been writing since age seven and just never stopped. Writing is my kind of my passion, my my first love. And it wasn't until my 40s 
that I was picked up by a publisher that I've been with for 14 historical novels now. That would be Baker Publishing Group. I write for their imprint, Ravel Books, and they've just been a wonderful traditional publisher. And so I'm excited to welcome in the new year with Novel 14, The Rose and the Thistle. Well, and we are super excited to ring in the new year with The Rose and the Thistle as well. A great book to add to your Kindle or to spend that Amazon gift card on that you get Yay. for the holidays. <laughs> so turning to The Rose and the Thistle, it's such an interesting premise and such a unique setting and a unique time period. Can you tell us a little bit about The Rose and the Thistle? I think it is unique, at least for the inspirational market. I haven't found anything, actually, there's not much in the general market either in the year 1715, which was this kind of highlighted because it was the year that one of the Jacobite uprisings happened. Now, that is kind of complicated history that we probably won't get into here. I tried to explain it carefully in the book without, you know, overwhelming the reader about the political situation, but it is an intriguing time period, 1715. It is a time when England and Scotland were not getting along. Of course, they have a long history of not getting along, but this, it kind of came to, you know, lots of historical fireworks in that year. And my own family history inspired this story because my sixth great-grandfather was a baron in Scotland by the name of George Hume, lived in a beautiful castle there, Wedderburn Castle, which happens to be on the back of this cover. And I was recently there in May visiting the lowlands of Scotland. I was also in France before that at the chateau where the novel opens. So I, you know, I have an English heiress and a Scottish Laird, and she's on the run. And the novel kind of evolves from there and incorporates a lot of my family history. So that was quite fun using or being inspired by, by real history that happened in my own family, even though it was, you know, two or 300 years ago. The records, records are still quite good about what happened in my family. And that's the reason the results of the Jacobite uprising and my family's involvement led to my Scottish ancestors coming to America. And that's why I'm an American and no longer a Scot. Wow. How interesting. How cool to be able to use your own family history to write a book and neat that you got to incorporate all of the genealogical research that you've done for it. My husband is Scottish and I've been finding that there are, like you said, still a lot of good records out there in Scotland about, yes, you know, the, the, the genealogy there. So it's pretty well documented, especially if you're an enemy of the crown, <laughs> there's like quite the paper trail, <laughs> Even, you know, in that time period, it still exists. And, you know, I guess that's one of the perks from from being a, labeled a traitor or, you know, imprisoned or being labeled a Jacobite. You know that history, that history follows you. And I'm so grateful because it's fascinating. And, and one of the reasons, you know, I think we write as historical novelists is to keep that history alive and, and make it relevant and, you know, somewhat realistic 
to today. Right. And my husband's family was definitely enemies of the crown. You mentioned that you keep mentioning the Jacobites. Can you just briefly explain who the Jacobites were and why they were enemies of the crown, as you say? Well, the Jacobites, and sometimes people think, well, the Jacobites were just Scottish, but that's not true. The Jacobites were actually a small percentage of the population in Great Britain. Uh, you know, Ireland was lumped in there with England and um, Scotland, but the Jacobites were a small number of people who supported the Stuart dynasty. Now, the Stuarts had ruled in Great Britain for a long time, and the Jacobites wanted to see the Stuart line continue. But the Stuarts were Catholic rulers, and it, it turned out that the parliament in the end did not want to continue. There was a big, you know, fierce debate and war between the Catholics and the Protestants at that time. So basically what happened was the parliament decided that there is not going to be another Stuart ruler. That dynasty is done. And that they overlooked all the claimants to the throne to bring in a Hanoverian line, which was from Germany. And that's where you you have George I. And then, you know, later on, you know, you have actually four Georges after George I. And then you get into Queen Victoria's reign. And, and that's how that began. So it was just a, a real schism between the Catholics and the Protestants. The Jacobites wanted to keep the Stuarts. You know, the Hanoverian supporters wanted a Protestant king, even if he was a German king. It's quite complicated history. I have a little note at the beginning of the novel that's about a paragraph long that says it better than I just did. <laughs> Sometimes if you see it on paper, it's it's kind of dry. It sounds really dry. But once you get into, if you fictionalize it and let the characters tell you the history, it becomes much more accessible and understandable. And isn't that one of the wonderful things about historical fiction is that we can show history, teach history in a way that's not facts and figures and, like you said, dry and put people to sleep kind of way. Right. The dreaded information dump. I, you know, it's fiction is, is so, you know, I love nonfiction, but oh my goodness, this history was very challenging to me. It took almost two years for me to read the first Stuart ruler to the last Stuart ruler and then, you know, kind of get into the 18th century and, and George the first, who has a lot of baggage, George the first. He's not, I'm not a fan of George the first. I actually am a huge fan of George the third and the American Revolution. You know, that's kind of my time period too. But it is, you, it's fun to, to kind of bring all the baggage out in the novel and use it you know, use it in the novel. It's just people are fascinating. Human nature doesn't change, even though times do. That is for sure. Now, I just found it really interesting that you have this tension in the book between the Catholic Jacobites and the Protestant Hanoverians. And I remember back in 2013, well, it would have been 2012, when I wrote my very first standalone novel, 
And I had a very brief mention of a Catholic character. It was maybe a sentence or two. And I was told to take that out of the book because readers did not want to hear any Catholic. They just wanted Protestant, straight Protestant, even though I was being true to the place that I was writing about. How has Christian fiction changed in the past 10 years that you're now able to do an entire novel that has this built-in tension to it? Yeah, that's fascinating. Good point. And in a decade has opened some amazing doors. You know, I will say this novel, it will probably offend people who, you know, maybe who just who want a Protestant cast, so to speak, who want a Protestant Mm -hmm. heroine, but being true to that time period. And there's I've been thinking about it, you know, I, our heroine, Lady Blythe Headley, is she isn't a Catholic heroine. She is a heroine who happens to be Catholic. So I'm, Mm -hmm. I wrote the novel with her religious affiliation and preference, not, you know, in the starring role, so to speak. I just made it kind of organic to who she was. And it, you know, brings up some some historical fireworks in the novel. I think publishers, my publisher is has been wonderful. There was not any pushback on that. There was no questions about her Catholicism. I do bring up her Catholicism quite a bit in the book. And then she meets the Protestant hero. But there's never a time in the novel where you feel like they're pitted against each other as far as, I mean, politically in the novel, they were definitely the two religions or whatever denominations were pitted against each other. But personally, between the hero and the heroine, it's, I did something maybe a little interesting or a little different with that toward the end of the book. But it was a huge point of conflict in that century. And Catholics were sadly as reviled as Jews. And many people thought of them as, you know, heretics and and whatnot. And it grieved me reading the history, how the Catholics, Catholics have been persecuted many times I mean, so unfairly, it's just, it's, but I try not to let that be the focal point. And I think I hopefully wove it in kind of seamlessly in the novel. Just, you know, I guess readers will be the judge. There might be some pushback on that from readers, but our heroine's faith is genuine. And the hero addresses it later on in the book. No spoilers, but... I, I had an interesting time writing her. It was an education for me as a Protestant. Yeah, I'm sure. And it sounds, and knowing you and how you write, I can see how you could manage that very well and make it not such a big deal. But like you said, but they both have faith and that's the most important thing of all. Right. And that is, you know, it comes down to in the end, who do you believe in? you know, mm-hmm. what do you believe in? Who do you believe in? And it's not yeah. what we call ourselves. It's basically, you know, looking to Jesus. He's who we believe in. God is who we believe in. Yeah. And like you said, you had to have it that way because of what the political climate was like during that time and, and what 
you know, just the world right. in general was like at that time as well. Yeah. It would have been so easy to have a Protestant heroine <laughs> who, you know, just <laughs> didn't have any obstacles and fled to his castle. And he just said, okay, open the door, let her in. With, I don't see a problem with this, but <laughs> that doesn't make good fiction for sure. For sure. For sure. Now, this book is a balance of history. There is some suspense. There's a bit of romance. How do you go about balancing all those three? It sounds like quite the juggling act to get just the right amount, like a right recipe for it. Oh, I love that. The right recipe. You know, it's interesting because I was asked on the Austin Pros interview recently. That's a great site, too, for for uh, those who don't know about austinpros.com. She asked me a similar question. She said, do you write historical fiction or historical romance? And I said, this book is probably could be labeled as both, but, but there's quite a bit of romance in this book, but there's a lot of history too. You know, I tried to avoid the dreaded information dump. Honestly, this is what I always fall back to. And it really is the truth. I am not one for craft books. I write without plotting and character charts and nothing wrong with those. I wish I was a little more organized that way, but I literally just sit down and write after I research some and get the character names down and where I think the story might be going. But I, you know, I, it's a gift. God gives me the ability and like, I'm sure you could say this and other Christian authors, God gives us the ability to tell the story as best we can enabled, you know, he enables us to do that. So any credit for it working goes to him. And I do hope it works. I, there is quite a bit of suspense in this novel because it was a dangerous time period. You have, you know, you have the Catholicism, you have the Jacobite factor and, you know, you have a heroine and a hero that actually do not like each other. So that was interesting to write. <laughs> what do they call that yeah. trope? In enemies to lovers or whatever. <laughs> right. And that, yeah, it was quite an eye-opening experience because I don't know that I've, I may have done that once in the past. I, I can't remember exactly, but it was an interesting, there, there was every reason for them to be enemies and no reason for them to be friends in this novel. So that was interesting, taking it from point A to point Z. Now, you briefly mentioned that you did travel to Scotland. What was that like? Tell us about your trip. Well, you know, it was interesting because I had grown up knowing about the Humes, that they were, you know, my sixth great grandfather was George Hume, and my family has this huge genealogy that they've done. And, and I don't want to say revered because they were a Christian family, but, you know, I grew up with this genealogy and knowing that we were from Scotland and and I find that your husband's from Scotland fascinating because I'm sure that's a treasure trove for you all. But anyway, so I grew up knowing from childhood, I had this genealogy. And it wasn't until I became a daughter of the American Revolution, DAR member, five or six years ago, that I took a, another look at that genealogy. Because, you know, what you grow up with just kind of becomes normal and you don't pay much attention to it. And when I realized through my DAR affiliation that this personal history could be, you know, would had the makings of a, of a good novel. And I began to, you know, consider it, you know, this just fascinating, fascinating ancestry. And so I, 
have gone to Scotland several times, but I have never been to the Wedderburn Castle, which is the seat, the family seat of the Humes. Now they lost that castle and all their lands and titles because they were Jacobites. And in that uprising in 715 that I write about, in reality, they lose everything and they end up being transported as prisoners of the crown to America. But in the novel, I flipped it. I, I said, well, what if, what if only part of that family became Jacobites, which often happened, and part of them stayed the course with England? And so you get a picture of both, both sides of that in this novel. And then I have an author note when I explain kind of what happened factually to my ancestors who were Jacobites. And the, so it was to get back to your question. So going to Scotland, I, it wasn't until this trip that I decided to go into the lowlands and visit my, the castle and the grounds castles and the grounds my family had lost because of their Jacobite allegiance. It was pretty emotional experience because I was not anticipating that. So I walked down the castle driveway onto the castle grounds and I just, it's, it's hard to, you know, you think of all the centuries of footsteps before you and that your sixth great grandfather had loved this beautiful place. The lowlands are spectacular. I mean, you, you think roll, it's, it's not at all like the Scottish Highlands. The lowlands are more agricultural. There's lots of pasture land, you know, just it's a, almost a gentle landscape. It's a gentler landscape than the highlands, I'll say. But it was just I was taken back by the beauty of the Scottish lowlands and that my family, I felt the loss because that loss of what they had as nobles, huge tracts of land, castles, they, that was taken away from them. And they, it was just, I felt some of that, that sense of loss, you know, I, we can't even fathom what they gave up, you know, did they regret it? You know, so those questions began to play in my mind while I was on site. And of course, I already want to go back again. Um, <laughs> I was sad that they ever fought and lost it, you know, who wouldn't want to be Lady Laura, right? Of Wedderburn Castle. But it, <laughs> <laughs> but that's just not how it played out. And I, I think it helped visiting that site or the Lowlands helped me write the novel or put the put the finishing touches or kind of ice the novel's cake, so to speak. Hopefully it is, feels real to the reader and they can imagine it as I, you know, live it vicariously, perhaps. Oh, that is so cool. I will tell you my husband's story when we're done here. We won't bore the readers with it. But I think oh, I would love you got to write it. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to hear it. Now, I did remember this from following you on social media. You had a very special addition to your family this past year. Can you tell us oh, like how it has? <laughs> I did. She's only, let's see, she'll be four weeks old tomorrow. My name is Laura Louise France, and her name is Sophie Louise France. And it was, she's so precious. In fact, we took her to her first Christmas concert, which was just mostly violins or fiddles last Friday night. And it was pretty sweet. I think she slept through the whole concert. <laughs> 
but <laughs> but it was a good start, right? And but anyway, she's yeah. she's so darling, and it's interesting because I was raised with a brother, no sisters, and my husband is one of five boys, and I raised we raised together two sons. And so to have a girl after all that, all those boys is quite the treat. <laughs> Thank you. She's oh, like that. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of fun shopping in your future. I can see it now. Oh, I'm laughing because the big bows of the 40s are back. <laughs> They're on the babies today. I just get so tickled. You got the big bows that are bigger than the baby. They're just good. It's darling, you know, but I think that's a 40s thing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so what is coming up next from you? Well, I'm it's interesting and I don't know if other authors write this way, but the the day the Rose and Thistle releases, January 3rd, 2023, I turn in my next novel, which is set in Acadia. It talked it basically centers around the Acadian expulsion when the British went in and basically evicted all the peaceful Acadians from Nova, what we know as Nova Scotia now. It, it was known as Acadia back then. So the British went in and, and took those people, put them on dilapidated ships and sent them to the colon, American colonies. 1755 was the year that it started. It continued, I think, for about eight years throughout the duration of the French and Indian War. And it was it's one of the most horrific... I think it's a crime against humanity. Queen Elizabeth, interestingly enough, apologized for it a few years before her death, which certainly doesn't reverse the horrible history. But anyway, it's a novel, 1755, about the Acadian expulsion. You have the heroine is an Acadian, and you have a Scottish soldier who is actually a ranger. The The special units now in the military, there's special units that when they were first came to be back in the 18th century were called just army rangers. And so my hero in that book is one of the first army rangers. It's actually his company of rangers. And this actually existed. There were wilderness men kind of akin to Daniel Boone who headed up these company of rangers. And so I had a fascinating time having a ranger hero. And you can imagine the fireworks because he's there to evict our heroine. And mm-hmm. it, but it's heartbreaking. I mean, it, there, it's not a happy ending. And so I had to, I had to somewhat write one. You know, mm-hmm. I had to redeem that horrific history in the way I wish it had been. But yeah. realistically, it, it was not good. Anyway, wow. too probably too much on that, but I'm getting ready to part with that the day that the Rose and Thistle releases, and then after that, I'm starting to research a another novel set in Glasgow, Scotland, and I'm I have loved this story in my head vaguely. I have the names nailed down now, I think, which is always the start of a novel for me. So, three more books coming, I guess you'd say, every January for the next three years. Oh, fabulous. That means that we get to talk to you every December or January for the next few years. I love that. Yeah, I'm starting off with you. I'm just, I'm really, especially, I got to give you a shout out. I'm really especially excited because you are releasing, I believe it's January 1st, what I would tell you. Yeah. Is that right? January 1st? And then I'm January 1st. uh, 
Yeah, great. So what I would tell you released is January 1st by Liz Tulsma, and then I released January 3rd. So it's fun to have a buddy <laughs> to start the new year with. <laughs> yes, yes, we'll be book birthday buddies. How's that? <laughs> we will, and it makes it even more fun to promote. You know, you get, I get so tired of promoting myself. So it's wonderful to, to, to be able to, you know, kind of cross promote like we're doing, you know. It's it's yeah. much more fun promoting an author friend than myself. Oh yes, yeah. Oh, you yes. understand yes. exactly Which for sure. The basis of your podcast. So, <laughs> if listeners would like to connect with you so that they can keep up with the Rose and the Thistle and with the other books that are coming, how can they go about connecting with you? Well, I'm really active on social media as far as my Facebook author page, just look up, you know, Laura France author. And I, I don't post weekends, but I post every day, weekday. I'm very active on Instagram and, you know, you can accept, visit my website, laurafrance.net and you'll see all the social media icons and my books and sign up for my newsletter. I send a seasonal newsletter four times a year and I love my newsletter. I put a lot of work into it and hopefully readers will enjoy that too. So just I'm not active on Twitter, although I do have an account and I used to be very active on Pinterest, but I'm don't go there anymore, but there are Pinterest boards of my books. So if you're visual, a visual reader and you need some illustrations for novels, you know, look me up on Pinterest and you'll find those for my novels. Thank you. Well, that sounds wonderful. It's been so much fun talking to you. We could go on and on for a while yet, but unfortunately the time says we need to end. But thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy day to spend a little time with us. And I am looking forward to reading The Rose and the Thistle when it releases. So I hope all of you do as well. Thanks, Laura. Oh, thank you. Until next time. God bless. Well, that was another wonderful chat with author Laura France. She is so delightful. And you're going to want to be sure to check out her book, The Rose and the Thistle. It is on my reading list for the new year. I hope that it makes it to yours too. A fascinating time in history. Lots to learn there, lots to explore there. And with the way she writes, you know it's going to be absolutely fantastic. If you would like to learn more about The Rose and the Thistle, or if you'd like to get a link in order to purchase the book, or if you'd like to find out more about Laura, then please head to my website, liztolsma.com. All that information and more will be there under the show notes. So please check that out. Coming up on next week's show, I am super excited because I got to be on the launch team for this book. So I've known about it for a long time, read it a while ago, but Tessa Ashfire is going to be back with us. She's been with us once before, and she is here to discuss her new book, The Hidden Prince. Oh, my goodness, I'm not just saying this because I was on the launch team, but I am saying this because this was a truly outstanding book. There are twists and turns that you aren't going to expect. She writes fiction set in biblical times. There are characters that you will recognize in this book. So 
If you get a chance, read The Hidden Prince. If you'd like to find out more about it, if you'd like to hear my chat with Tessa Afshar, then be sure to stop by for our chat next week. I thank you so much, all of you, for taking time out of your very busy days. I know the holidays are upon us and there's so much going on, but I appreciate each and every one of you taking time to listen to this, to tell your friends about Christian Historical Fiction Talk, and for being loyal listeners. None of this would be possible without you all. I do thank you from the bottom of my heart. Have a wonderful week, a very Merry Christmas, and I will talk to you all next time. Mm -hmm.